Morning, folks. So I want to cut right to the chase this morning. Uh, The text that I'll be looking at is out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 12. And this portion of scripture that that I was given the task to expound upon, upon is really pretty deep, but no different from any other task that anybody's had before me, because the book of Hebrews is really a deep book. And so I feel in some ways I'm going to fail on exegeting the text even before I start. But start I must. That's my task. So I want, you to, I want to encourage you to follow the text in whatever way serves you the best. But I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles Of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is also cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And in its end, to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In chapter chapter 2, which was several weeks ago, we were introduced to the terms like drifting and neglect. Here in chapter 6, we see the term sluggishness. If you were to forward fast to chapter 10, you would see wavering and shrinking back. And all of those are fractional losses. That means they happen incrementally over, over time. The change is not instant or explosive. It's like the song Casting Crowns has termed, it is a slow fade. So I want to propose this question today. In looking at the text we heard last week on approaching the throne of grace. Are you moving confidently towards the throne of grace? Or maybe somehow you have turned and you're moving in the opposite direction away from it. Because both... Actions are directional. Falling away is about direction, even as drawing near is about direction. And the change is not instant or explosive, 
what happens bit by bit. The beginning of this month, I was at a Save-A-Lot store in Governor. My task was to check the scales there. I went into their meat department, and I put my weight upon the scale. It was a one-pound weight. It was two hundredths of a pound off. I said, hey, you feel right here. The guy looked at me, and he said, that's not bad, is it? So we added up our weight till we got to 20 pounds, and it was 0.68 pounds off, almost three-quarters of a pound to two pounds, or 20 pounds. So I said to him, I said, you know, how many pounds of meat do you put over this scale? He says between six and 800 pounds a day. I said, what is your average of all of those meats? He said, price-wise, he said, maybe $3 a pound. I said, if, if you were to add that up, 364 days of the year, because they have Christmas off, thank God, then the total amount would be $22,276 of loss that is being transmitted over that scale. And that's what drifting looks like. It is a subtle distance change that builds up over time and costs you dearly. And the drifting that is described here is self-causing. It consists of actions that are self-made and self-solving and self-centered and self-serving. And all of those things compose this current that I call of the throneless movement. Now, the book of Hebrews... I am thankful for this. Chapter 6 is a cautionary text. It's like a lifeline that has been tossed out into the current, hoping that those that are caught up in the current would lay hold of it. And the truth there, it is addressing drifters who are not seeing that God has given to us the final word, which is Jesus Christ. Drifters who do not see that God is the sole judge of moral and mental character. Drifters who have failed to embrace the redemptive factor. Drifters who have failed to see him as the ultimate benefactor. Maybe at one time the things of God appealed to them, but there has been a frequency decrease for some reason. For some people, I'm wondering if unbearable suffering has somehow hindered their approach to the throne of grace. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus, through suffering, had move us in a godless direction, but with greater earnestness, it begs us to move to the throne of grace, where we will see grace that is given in time of need. And as we become distracted by hurt or disenchanted by pain or sluggish through the disappointments we face in life, we need to about face, we need to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, because there we see how he handled redemptive suffering. He was extraordinarily dialed in to the Father's will at that point. I can't say that he, he sought God with, with more intensity because his relationship with the Father was always intense. He said the Father and I are one. That is intense. But during that time, his focus, I must say, was deliberate. And it tells us that when we are encountering suffering or weakness in our life, we should be dialed in with a greater sense of deliberation to seek the God and how he wants to help us in that space of life. So our text today, we're seeing preventative actions that are presented as a challenge to those who might be tempted to join the throneless movement. The text opens up in verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say. And I'm thinking, he has a lot more to say about what? Well, in chapter 5, verse 9, it says this. I think it points to this. 
he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal life and eternal salvation. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you doing to promote advanced obedience in your life? Because the way we advance is through the habit of listening and even more challenging, the habit of obeying. Obeying, you see, is not just about getting the rules right. It's about getting procedures right. If they hire you at Tim Hortons, they're going to train you. They're going to tell you the rules. But they're going to give you procedures that take you from point A to point B so that they can cash in on it. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the text. Obedience happens when learning happens. Learning happens because listening happens. It's really quite that simple. And the Message Bible puts it this way. I love the directness of it. It said it's hard to get across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. When I read that, it sounds domestic to me. I don't know about you folks. That's the kind of stuff that a wife would say to her husband, or you might say to the kids, or you might say to your parents, right? But this writer was speaking to family, kingdom family, spiritual family. And he said, you've picked up the bad habit of not listening. Most translations have dull of hearing. You know, people can become dull of hearing over time. I think the aging process does that to us. But this is not an aging process he is talking about. It is not age-defined. And it can happen to anyone who is in the bad habit. So, again, I like the Message Bible, where it reads, By this time, you ought to be teachers yourselves. Yet here I find you in need of someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God again, starting from square one, baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. It presents two convicting statements. You ought to be, you should have been. I don't know if that hurts you at all, but that does something to me. It is a challenge to my soul. And what they do, those two things, is they expose a malady of being. And the remedy for that malady is to start listening and to press in. And if you're not what you ought to be spiritually today, then press in, listen, and learn. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, 11, and 12, it presents to us this dilemma of hearing and I think sometimes there's difficulties, built-in difficulties. And the writer wished to communicate something of importance, but it was difficult. Not because the material was too complex or he was inadequate as a teacher. Or because they lacked intelligence. You see, maturity generally is not about a lack or a gain of intelligence. It's about application and the right choices that you're making in life. And so the answer to maturity is not in better programs, though I suppose it could help, or in better teacher. I don't think you could get much better than this writer, though it may help. The answer is in choosing to have an adventuresome spirit where you're longing to grow up into spiritual maturity. You see, spiritual hunger is largely a self-regulated feature where one takes responsibility for their own spiritual diet and growth. Back on November, 
28th of 2014, I wrote this in my journal. I fear I love the word less now. There's less excitement. There's less adventure where I say to myself, I wonder what God's word says about this. I find that there's less precision, which is less depth and study with the patience to dig in and to dig deep. And then I ask myself this question. I ask myself a lot of questions. Have I lost the thrill of biblical learning? And I want to ask you this morning, maybe you have lost the thrill of biblical learning. And maybe it has derailed your success. And you have disappointed yourself in the process. I want to encourage you this morning not to frame your mistakes and hang them on a wall, over-accentuating them, because when you do so internally, you diminish the transformative grace of God in your life. When you maximize grace, you will minimize failure. It's that simple. And then use your time wisely. Verse 12 says, by this time you ought to have been teachers. So I ask the question, what are you doing with your time? And do you give adequate time for the word of God? See, maybe you've become bored of the word. I, I, I don't even really know where the option of boredom comes into being a disciple of Jesus Christ when I think about it, right? I mean, if for you to live as Christ, then that in itself should produce some element of excitement, you know? And that tells me that boredom is the evidence of something that is wrong, something that is out of balance. Because if we are imitators of Christ, and we're only doing what the Father is doing, then we won't be doing boredom. Boredom exists because passion, to some degree, has been lost. So be passionate about the Word of God. Be like Jeremiah, who said, I found thy words, and I ate them, and they became the joy and the delight of my heart. The concept of maturity is introduced in verse 14. Maturity is not just about mental astuteness like that of a Bible student. You see, maturity has to deal with moral and mental character. It is where you are longing for the word, the terms of the writer of righteousness. And you're looking to have that bring about real fruit in your life. That's what we're looking at in terms of maturity. When that happens, you'll see the analogy that is brought forth in 7 and 8 of the ground that drinks of the rain and brings forth vegetation. In verse 1 of chapter 6, we have this. Let us go on to perfection. Pressing on to perfection is where you're trying to get a greater piece of what you already have. If you look at verses 1 to 3, it can be summarized in this fashion. Let us press on to perfection, and then dot, 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 and this we shall do. It's right there in the text, verses 1 to 3. And I love that. I think that could be a responsive reading, where, where I say, starting this, say, let us press on to perfection. And your response is, in this we shall do. I think that's a great thing for maturity. Let us press on to perfection. Well, some of you shall. <laughs> so there's a long-standing movie, a movie, a classic movie that talks about learning. And this is what it's about. It's about being committed to learn. And I, I want to read that to you. This is your quiz of the day. I want you to figure out where it comes from. 
Why, anyone can have a brain. That is a very mediocre commodity. Every pusillanimous creature that crawls on the earth or slinks through the slimy seas has a brain. Back where I come from, we have universities, seats of great learning where men go to become great thinkers. And when they come out, they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. But they have one thing you haven't got, a diploma. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz, 1939, and to date. You see, great thinkers thinking truly great thoughts, thoughts in the eternal scope, are focused on learning about the supremacy of Christ. And the diploma will be the transformation of your life. Then the author points out different aspects of learning, elementary aspects. I hardly think they're elementary at all. But each of these are either learned or experienced aspects. And so in verses 1 to 3, we see these informative things. Repentance from dead works, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. They're all important, but they are informative. Then he turns the corner. In verses 4 to 6, he's talking about transformative things. Those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. You see, informational matters rationally change you at the core of your thinking. But transformational matters radically change you at the core of your being. And this is what he's pointing out. And when we lay hold of those truths, there's something deeper that happens. And if we don't, the falling away is greater. And this is what he's talking about. Then I love this portion. He says this in verse 4 and 5. He talks about those who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. Is that an odd expression or not? We find this in this writer. Throughout, the, throughout the, the whole epistle, he's got these strange things. Where's the man coming from? But I really love that. It, it, it says, have tasted of the age to come. It's not even here yet. How can you taste it, right? Let me put it this way. It's like tasting a spaghetti dinner that we're going to have next Friday, right? So... It's not odd if you look at it this way. If the cook has started the sauce the week before, and it simmers all week long, and you have access to the kitchen, and you make your way over to the pot that is simmering, and you take samples day by day because you have the privilege of the spoon. You see, those that saw the signs and wonders of Jesus had tasted of the age to come. They had the privilege of the spoon. And those that had tasted of the signs and miracles and wonders that were tested by the hands of the apostles, you see, they had tasted of the age to come. They had the privilege of the spoon. And when you get the spoon, you get a taste. But when you get the fork and plate, you get it all. So the book of Revelation says this. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. 
You see, now we hold the spoon, but then we'll have the plate and fork. And in that moment, Scripture tells us that we will have resurrected bodies that are glorious like Jesus has, and that we should be changed, and that this full summit of our total being will at last be profoundly presented to us. And in that concept, we should live out our days of eternity. That's amazing. That is amazing. And it points out the tragedy of falling away in that in doing so, we miss the summit of our being. That is why the author is so passionate. Now, drifting, neglect, and sluggishness and falling away happens because the powers of darkness are more influential in our life than what they should be. But if I give myself to Jesus with a commitment to maturity, then it's going to be difficult for the powers of darkness to contend with. The powers of darkness in some grade, some fashion, some way, want a piece of you. Because if they can have a piece of you, if they can own you to some degree, then you will be manipulated and you will be managed by that system. So, I want to skip ahead to verse 6 for a moment. This is the verse that can hurt our ears. Okay? There's a psalm that tells us to taste and see that God is good. Verse 5 here tells us that they had tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I think it's remarkable that a person could look at something before them that is so amazing and so vast and yet be willing to let it go with such determination. But it happens. He's telling us apostasy happens. The falling away happens. It may be rare, but it is possible. So verse 6 uses the phrase, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. I want to talk about repentance for, for a little bit. Repentance is a critical health factor. I don't know if you knew that. In the Weights and Measures Department, one of our duties is to check all the scales in St. Lawrence County of which commerce is transacted over. And so we look for several things. One thing that we look is that the scale is repeatable. So that whatever weight we put on and take off and put it back on again, it always reads the same. Tells us that the scale is healthy and that you're getting what you're supposed to get. But the other thing we're looking for is a scale that maintains its zero. Some scales lose that. So when you take a weight off, it doesn't go back to zero. Maybe it's at a half a pound. So whatever you put on after that is wrong and inconsistent. It's far from the truth and reality of what you have. Repentance is precisely that. It allows you to start over again at the proper place and whatever conduct you have had before now becomes erased by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And rather than continuing from your point of sin, you start again by being released from it. That's repentance. It's one of the best gifts that we have in our possession. And yet, I think sometimes we seldom use it with the precision that it warrants or, or we don't celebrate it with the abandon that we ought to. And that's what's being said about repentance. But Hebrews 2, 3 says this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And salvation is great. Salvation is great because God does something in our life now that's transforming. Salvation is great because he's going to do it tomorrow. 
you see. He's, it's great because it's something that he's done in the past. And salvation is so great that it reaches out to time without end. And that's why the writer calls it eternal salvation. That's the dread that he's talking about, that someone would fall away from that possibility that they have in life. Now, I've seen a brother one time that was so broken that he abandoned God completely, or so it seemed. And I went to visit this brother. I wanted to encourage him the best I could. I wanted to love on him, wanted to see how he was doing. And when I saw him, I could not believe what this man was saying. He was cursing God. He was swearing at God in words that were so vile that it actually hurt, actually hurt my mental faculties. And I was alarmed in my soul, and I walked away and thought, this is what apostasy looks like. And the years had passed. I had not seen him for several. And then when I did, I saw a man that was totally different. I saw a man that somewhere along the way, he must have understood that there was that reset, that button, that repentance thing that erases, erases the error and brings you back in rightness with God again. And I saw a guy that was transformed by grace. And I saw someone that began to understand that the grace, the throne of grace is not weak to cure our spiritual maladies. But it is powerful and transformative for us and for others as we share that with them. God is not fragile in his graces, people. So don't think for a moment that you can insult him by his generous giving of that. And I don't know what the point of no return looks like. But apparently it was clear enough that it is a possibility. Now, the solution to the powers of darkness that want a piece of us is to be fully engrossed and usable for Christ in his kingdom. Verse 7 says, useful to those who forsake it is also tilled. So I want to ask you, how can we be useful for Christ in his kingdom? How can we be fully engaged? How can we shake off every vice that is dragging us back? How front row can we, we be where we want to hear and see everything that's going on around us because of what the Spirit of God is doing? When I was in Haiti, I had a chance to preach in the central plateau, and it was up in the grasslands of Savannah. And I preached at this one church, and there was a man that was sitting way in the back of the church. And as I got going and a little fiery, I, I began to talk about the kingdom of God and was using marketplace terminology. And, and the older gentleman got up, and he, he came, and he sat right dead center in the front row. Because that man wanted to be front row of what God was doing. And I realized that that's what it means to press on to perfection or to press on to maturity is where, is where we want more than what we already have. And we have that availability to us. So, then in verse 10, it reminds us that God will not forget how well you have used what he has given. And what he has given is not just for you, folks. And that's what this portion of Scripture is saying. He will not forget your work and love, which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. He will not forget your work. Now, work takes time. I go to work five days a week. 
Every day I put in at least eight and three quarters hour. That means by the time I get done, I don't have large quantities of time for large things. But what I do have, I have the ability to give of myself at any given point of that day and give myself to other people for the kingdom and for Christ. That I can do. And what he's saying is he will not forget that which we have done. So again, one of the last questions, maybe, that I ask you, is that which is coming for you today counting for something? Or have you become sluggish? Verse 12. Last year, there was a cold spell where buses were stranded alongside the road because the diesel fuel that they had purchased was not sufficiently with kerosene. You see, diesel fuel begins to gel at 15 degrees Fahrenheit. The, the lines begin to be plugged. The filters begin to be clogged. And a driver can go along and might think that things aren't working quite right, and all of a sudden, it's over. The wheels stop turning, and he comes to a dead stop. And there were bus drivers with kids that were going to designated spot, and there they were, is stopped, stranded alongside the road. You know why? Because there are no sluggish meters. No gauges tell you, okay, your sluggishness is increasing. There's no visual signs. It just sneaks up on you, insidiously and happens. And this is what he's saying. That sluggishness is a disease of the soul that creeps upon you insidiously, fractionally, incrementally over time and reduces your better being until the wheels stop turning. Now, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and thinks, I think I'm going to be sluggish today. Or, oh, it's like a holiday. It's sluggish day. You know? It doesn't go like that. It happens because diligence has faded. It happens because mental and moral restraint are without priority. It happens because hope and purpose are lost. All because someone misunderstands who God is and what he really asks of us. And what we have found so far in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is stunningly supreme and that that should mean something to us. And if it does not, eventually the wheels will stop turning. And the point will come where there's no longer this fluidity of the imitation of Christ in our life, which in fact results in the reduction of our total and better being. This time, I'd like the worship team to come forward, and as I do, I want to offer up a prayer. They could move quietly. I'd appreciate that. Lord, we thank you for this difficult text. But in this text, Lord, we find life and we find purpose. Help us to never grow weary in drawing near to the throne of grace, the place where we find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy first because mercy is effectual in that it allows us to get grace which is dominant. Jesus, you are majestic in glory. You are gloriously all-knowing. You have mental character. And in your glory, you were tempted in all things as we, and yet without sin, you have moral character. 
And may your mental and moral excellence become our gauge of being so that we can relish the opportunity of what is presented to us today, which is maturing in the imitation of Christ. Thank you for the privilege of the spoon, for our reservation at the great supper, having been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And thank you for the thrill of knowing you through the very words of God, the oracles of God. Grant us the thrill of learning, mingled with the habit of hearing and doing as we respond with sincere devotion to what the Spirit is still saying to the churches today. Amen.